0: Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us. And I pray that your word would come um, as, uh, with clarity. It would bring conviction and that it would ultimately put us to Christ. God, what every single person in this room needs most, without exception, whether they are uh, Christians or non-Christians, whether they're asking questions, whether this is the first time they've walked through the doors of a church, whether they've been a Christian for 42 years... God, whether they've wandered away from the faith and are just coming back, God, what all of us need most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more confident in what he's done, and more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would lift Christ high in this place, that all of our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the things we started to do as a church number of years ago is during the reading of God's word, we, we stand together. So every now and then, I just like to remind us why we do that. That We, we do that to distinguish between um, the, the preaching and the, and the reading of scripture, the authority of God's word. And so it's like if, if the king came into the room right now, we would stand at his arrival. So that's why we stand. Something we've done only a few times. And I'm asking that we do it today and maybe we'll start doing it. I would love every week. But at the end of the reading, I will say this. This is the word of the Lord. And what I'd love for you to do is to thanks be to God. So I want to recognize in this room, there's people from a lot of backgrounds, and maybe you don't believe this is the word of the Lord. You don't need to feel compelled or coerced to say that, but I do want to invite you to consider it as we read this text. I will say again, this is the word of the Lord, and the response is, thanks be to God. I think you'll see why here in a second. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, would you, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree... That those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to grab a seat. When I was four or so, my dad came to me and he said, Rob, do you know that you can make fireworks with string and a twig and some rolled up paper and some tape? And I said, really? Really? And so I went to my room and I began my little craft project. And I went in there and I worked for an hour putting together this this bottle rocket shaped firework. And I came out to my dad and I said, dad, look, I made it. Look how good it is. And he said, Rob, that's amazing. Do you want to light it? Do Do you want me to light it? Do you want to see if it'll work? I said, oh, that'd be great. So he goes out in the backyard and he sets up a bottle And he crouches down and he leans over and he puts my homemade firework in the bottle and he pulls out a lighter and he lights the string and then he runs away and I'm standing a little ways back and it took off. Zoom, it went up in the air and exploded and I was amazed. I was like, it worked. I can't believe it actually worked. And so I went back to my room and for the next few hours, I began to make more and more fireworks until my older brother came in and said, Rob, you are such an idiot. Dad, Dad. Switched it out for a bottle rocket when he crouched down. What are you doing? Now, it's a, it's a, you know, my dad was just messing with me, just a little little joke, a little harmless trick for sure, and I don't think he would have let me believe it very long. But if he did, think about this. So this is about three weeks prior to the 4th of July in my neighborhood back in the day, we used to have this huge neighborhood fireworks display. Everyone would come. I mean, what if I had spent three weeks, day in, day out, making all my little fireworks, getting all ready, and all the neighbors come over and they set up their chairs and we begin to light fireworks off and I proudly present them with this huge case of, these are the best, watch them go. And they set them up and they hit the string (laughs) And it doesn't go anywhere. I look back, I'm like, I was so gullible. I was, how did I do it? We've showing that it doesn't work. The sermon title comes from a book by Rod Dreher, Live Not By Lies, which I haven't read, so I can't comment on the book. I've read a few of his books. It's on my stack. I don't know if it's good or not. <laughs> but the title captures the main thesis of the book, that we're not to live by lies, That the culture around us is always presenting alternative ways of understanding reality, and we're not to live by them. We're not to leave them unchallenged. We're not to live by them. That idea fits really well with this passage. look at verse 18, by their unrighteousness, they suppressed the truth, or verse 21, they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, or verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Verse 25 captures what I would say is the critical error. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and once that happens, everything falls apart. That's verses 26 through 32. Verse 26, dishonorable passions. Verse 28, debased mind. The things we long for, the things we think get skewed. Verse 29, filled with all manner of unrighteousness. What I want to do as we approach what is obviously a very heavy text is I want to walk backwards through it. Typically, we'll walk from, we'd walk from verse 18 down to 32, but what I want to do is walk from verse 32 back to verse 18, and hopefully you'll see so, see why in, in a minute. What I want to do is begin with some of the lies that we're confronted with in our culture so that we get to the, the big lie between all the other lies. Start with verses 28 through 32. This contains what are known as a sin list. Uh, it's not exhaustive. This is in all the ways that you can sin against God or express, as verse 18 says, unrighteousness or ungodliness. It's not exhaustive, but It's illustrative. It's an example of what God's wrath, verse 18, stands against. I'm not going to comment on each of them, but I would invite you, this is a very helpful thing to do when you come across texts like this, is to actually spend some time looking at it and asking God to give you some discernment about where you typically fall or areas that you might step into those ditches more than other ones. But I do want to draw attention to a few phrases in the last verse, in verse 32. They know God's righteous decree. What that's saying is that everyone has a sense in them of what is right, what is wrong, what is helpful, what is is harmful. There's just this innate sense. There's something about that. Even though they have a sense of what is right, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's an interesting phrase. What's happening here is they're cheering on Those that are participating in the same things that are declared as being all manner of unrighteousness, what they're doing is cultivating a culture that celebrates doing wrong things so the wrong things begin to feel right. So, again, they're they're cultivating a culture that celebrates doing the wrong things so that those wrong things begin to feel right to us. Remember, these verses are a sin list. But here, Paul, the author of this letter, has in mind people that take what is sinful and then revise it is no longer sin, but actually something to be celebrated. A question we might ask is, how does that happen? And I think this insight from David Wells explains it really well. He's defining what worldliness is. He says it like this. He says, worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has as its center. That's an important word. It's what's the loudest authority? What's the thing that matters most? What determines what is right and wrong? It has at its center the very gravity of the decisions we make and how we live, it has at its center our fallen human perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It's a big line. It makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to do what is morally wrong and for that reason make what's wrong seem normal. I want to get to the first lie here in just a minute, but I want to give you an example from, from pop culture to show how sneaky this sort of thinking is. And what I found in the first service, this is by far the most defensive thing that I actually said. So I'll just set you up for that there. And it's about the movie Frozen. And so <laughs> I felt terrible. There's a young girl here with a dress with Elsa the Queen on her dress. And so I'll say this on the front. I'll try to clarify what I said last service, but didn't clear say clearly enough. It's a wonderful movie with wonderful things to learn from. It's done very, very well. But there is a curious moment with one of the songs that I think can embed some things in us without us even being aware, and it's the song, Let It Go. Musical hit, 2014. As of Friday on YouTube, it was viewed 867 million times. That's stunning how many times it's been watched, how many times it's been sung. It was sung by Elsa, who was the princess, who became the queen, and at some point, I don't remember how this worked. I should have gone back and watched the whole movie, but she she got this hidden ability that she had to keep uh, private from everyone else. She somehow was able to like turn stuff into snow and throw icicles and make snowmen and turn blizzards and basically bring an ice age to the world, and so she had to grow up hiding this, and at some point, point in the movie, her her true hidden self came out. She was at a party and inadvertently she didn't mean to, but she kind of got in a fight with her sister and she throws her arms and all of a sudden these icicle daggers go out towards her sister. And all the townspeople now are absolutely freaking out and she gets kind of scared. And so she runs from the party. And as she runs from the party, it's really interesting the scene light snow begins to fall. And then she gets to this giant lake and she gets her foot close to it and kind of steps back towards it. And where she's about to step, it, it just becomes ice. And she steps on it. And then the ice spreads and the ice spreads and the ice spreads. And it now goes out through the whole town and the whole uh, kingdom. And, and it's beginning to snow more and more. And, and Elsa's ah, it's really sad. She's, she's running and running through the woods. And you can see the scene if you've seen the movie. And she runs and she gets way up on this giant fjord. And then she begins to sing. You know, it's so hard. I'm going to read some of the lyrics. It's so hard not to sing them. It's just everything in me wants to sing. You have the piano. And she just begins to sing. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. Right? And then and it just goes into let it go. You know, it's just let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. She's like doing all this stuff. She's creating things and going crazy. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. <laughs> Amen. She goes on, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. Here's the line no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now I'm going to get to a punchline later where I don't think she would have sung that those lyrics at the end of the movie, okay? But what she's saying in this moment is a really popular and the first one of our lies is this, be true to yourselves. Or follow your heart. Don't worry about the consequences. You do you. You know, live your truth. Whatever, whatever is most true inside you, whatever you feel, there is no right, there is no wrong. It's just, it's, you, it's be true to yourself. The only sin is to not be authentic to who you are, what you feel, what feels right. Mark Sayers in his book, Disappearing Church, says this about our cultural moment. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, And self-expression. To deny what you desire is to deny your truest identity and your highest good. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart, no matter what anyone says. This is otherwise known as, I'll give you a fancy phrase from the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, expressive individualism. And it's everywhere in our culture. Expressive individualism is, is in here summarizing him that, that each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. Each of us finds our meaning by not looking out or looking up, but looking in and saying, What do I feel? What do I think? What seems right to me? But in light of this text, do you see any problems? Finding our meaning by giving expression to our feelings and desires. You know, look again at the passage, verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies. Verse 25, they exchanged truth for a lie. Verse 18, they're suppressing the truth. Here's the point. Our hearts and our minds don't always work right. Are not always. It's not that they're always flawed and always broken, But really, should they be the ultimate authority for how we're to live? Our hearts and our minds don't always work right. They can't always be trusted and are not the best authority. The Bible says this in a lot of different ways. I'll just give you another verse. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You hear this all the time in our culture. I can't imagine God will put a desire in somebody that he doesn't want them to live out. And I hear that and I go, that is the wildest statement to me. I go, the things in my heart and in my head, if I gave full vent to, would so dishonor him and so harm my neighbor. I think Elsa in Frozen, if you watch the movie, she realizes that there are consequences to the way we give full rein to what we feel. as she pushes her sister away. She brings damage to the kingdom. I mean, all, I just don't think she would have sang it, at least in the same way. I mean, she would have definitely had that great, you know, you know, just chorus, just belting out, would have figured it out, right? But I don't think she'd say there's no right and no wrong and no rules. Verse 13 talks about evil being invented, and then verse 32, it's being celebrated, That's a really interesting comma. We're always coming up with new ways, all manner of unrighteousness, just new expressions of it. And then we as a culture begin to celebrate it. What we do is we take that which should be, uh, we take righteousness and make that look strange. We take that which is sinful and make it look normal. That is unlivable. What can you root yourself down in then? When that which is moral today is condemned in 20 years, which that, that was moral, 200 years ago was looked down and frowned upon. I mean, really, truly, what do you think people are gonna say about us in this cultural moment and the choices we make? Do you think in 500 years, everyone's gonna be like, you got it right? It's unlivable. One group normalizes, another group will condemn. What can you trust? I can't remember where I heard this, um, but this person said, okay, imagine a time traveler showing up sometime in the last 20 years, they would know the exact year by asking one question. Who hates J.K. Rowling right now? (laughs) That was a really great insight. If you don't know, J.K. Rowling wrote a series of books, uh, Harry Potter and, 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 and... very creative, sold like a billion books, um, something like that. If you go back when they first came out, there was a huge outcry against her from the majority from, from the church, from certain Christians that were very concerned. And I'm not making, a, I'm not passing judgment on whether they should like it, not like it, condemn it, not. But this group of people were like, these books are going to turn our kids into witches. We cannot do this. We need to get rid of these books completely. And she became beloved by, by certain communities, by people that love fantasy literature and all sorts of stuff. I mean, just out absolutely adored, but, but, but until a few years ago, where she tweeted something, and what she was doing was questioning the audacity to question, say, I'm concerned with the pace that we're embracing a transgender ideology. If you go listen to interviews, she's not rejecting all of it. She's saying, I'm concerned with some of what we're doing, particularly to, to, to teens, I'm concerned about shared spaces. I'm concerned about how we're defining what it means to be a woman. And now all the people that, that, that were like, the, the Christians were like, Let's, I, I hate her books, but I like her tweet. And all the people said, man, I loved her books, but I hate her tweet. People that she was loved by, she is now abased in their eyes. Here's the point. What's right Who's right? I mean, isn't J.K. Rowling truly just being true to herself? Isn't she just following her heart and living her truth? In our cultural moment, why isn't that enough? Why isn't that celebrated and accepted by a culture that sings, there is no right, there is no wrong? I'm not going to answer that. I'll leave it to you. But the point of this is perhaps we're to be less true to ourselves and more true to this. Or maybe we become most true to what our truest identity is, which is that is image bearers of God made for him. Now, why is, we'll, we'll move into the second line. Why is be true to yourself so popular? Or why is like follow your hearts? It's an easy sell. It's an easy sell. And I would suggest it's because of this next lie. You only live once. You only live once. It's an approach to life that says, this is it. You get one, you better make the most of it. Because this is it. My uh, wife's uh, grandma was a self-professed atheist, and she had this, this little magnet on her fridge. Many people have this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's a close reference to a passage in the Bible, but behind it, it's just saying the same thing. You only live once. The idea is like, this is it. There's nothing after. And if that's true, I better not spend my life living for something that, that doesn't even exist. You only live once, but here's the question. Is that true? The answer is like, sort of. Um, and I say sort of, you only live once, but here's the big question. Is this life it? Is there nothing next? Here's the Bible's answer, Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There is a sense this is the only life, but this is not all that there is of life. That there is something Next, why am I making this point? Look at verse 27. As we begin to walk up this text, the very last part of it says this, that they're receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, that there's some consequence that's happening. Now, we don't know from this text. It's impossible to prove, is this temporal? Is this like a right now consequence? Or is this an eternal consequence? That we, we, We're not sure, but it captures something important, that you can be true to yourself to your own peril. And you can follow your heart right into heartache. We see it in verse 32. Those who practice such things deserve to die. We see it in these three repeated phrases in 28, 26, and 24. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. And what could be worse than that? Maybe verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. We'll look more at the the wrath of God and judgment next week, so definitely invite your neighbors. Um, (laughs) But briefly, here's the the point. You do only live once, and how you live matters forever. It matters forever. In college, I was a... uh, I got to be a high school uh, youth leader. And one of the things I loved about high school students and still do is their willingness to just say whatever they want, just whenever they want and say it however they want. It's this 15 year old guy. And he comes and says, Hey, Rob. And it's always, hey, Rob. Let me tell you something. Um, listen, God knows I'm a 15 year old boy and I'm going to do some stuff. And he'll forgive me and he's cool with it. And I looked at him and I said, He will forgive you, but make no mistake, he is not cool with it. Next week, we'll look at this text, Romans 2, 4 through 5. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance in this one life that we get? But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is a hard text with hard edges, but here's the question in a in a culture that we say, oh, we we so value love. Is it loving to not speak truth? We so often pit these against each other as if they're they're enemies. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to share the hardest truth. And that's what this text is doing. That with our minds that get cloudy and our hearts that wander, that there is a way to live, and it's not just what we feel. And there is a life that we live, and we will be held accountable to it. Is it really loving to say, be true to yourself, that all it does is end in calamity? As we continue to move up the text, as we look at verses 26 and 27, we see what I would suggest to you as a subset of be true to yourself or follow your heart. Um, You see it on yard signs all around Bellingham, I want to recognize, might be on a yard sign that you have as well. Before we look at this, um, before I state the belief, I recognize how uncomfortable this is. I recognize how personal this can be. I recognize for sure how complicated this is and the questions that come up and, 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 and the, the problems that it issues forth. But here's something every single one of us is going to have to wrestle with in our lives what determines truth? What determines for you? What's at the center? What's at the authority? What's at the place? Is it, is it what your heart longs for? Is that the ultimate? Is it the, the moralism you were raised with? Is that the ultimate? Is your political affiliation, is that the ultimate? Is it the word of God? Is that the ultimate? All of us are going to have to determine what is right and helpful or wrong and harmful we're going to come back to this question of truth and authority in a little bit, but here's the widespread belief that verse 26 and 27 challenges. Love is love. I believe that phrase was originally spoken as a, as a motto in, in the fight to redefine marriage. Trying to shift marriage from being understood as is between one man and one woman to being equally valid between two men. Or two women. Now the phrase has expanded for sure to include widespread support of consenting adults. Any any expression of our sexuality amongst consenting adults is not only to be tolerated, to be accepted, celebrated, championed, and to not do so is paramount to being a cultural heretic, to being phobic, to being full of hate. Now, I would suggest to you verses 26 through 27 is really clear. Now, no doubt there are churches and Christians that try to take these verses and redefine them and make them say what they do not say. I am not going to give you a long list of arguments and counter arguments. Happy to share resources with you if this is something you genuinely want to dive into. But let me do this give you an invitation again to consider what determines truth. What is your authority? It's only from that spot that you're going to be able to honestly study the text anyway. Why do I say that? Years ago, I was meeting with a um, non-Christian buddy. He began to ask questions about Christianity. and, And so I invited him. I said, hey, how about we hang out every week? We'll get together and we'll just read through the Bible and we'll just interact on it. We'll just just be an open place. And what what I encouraged you to do was to to go read the Gospel of Matthew, so it's this account of Christ's life, and to read this letter to the Romans. And I said, every week when you're reading, you read a verse, a paragraph, a chapter, however far you get, just write down, here's some stuff that stood out to me, here's some things that I think are wrong, here's some questions that I have, this this was confusing, and then we would get together and we would begin to talk about them. And and I love the questions he he asked. And I would tell you, if you ever get somebody who's newer to the faith or a non-Christian that legitimately... He just wants to give you their lens on the Bible. It's so valuable. He would come in and he, would, we were, he was reading through Matthew and there's a spot called the Sermon on the Mount, this, this long extended teaching of Jesus. And there's a section in there where, where Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your right eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. And my buddy, he comes to me and says, Rob, this is an issue. <laughs> Do I really have to like cut off my hand? Just your left one, just your left. And uh, no, what it did is it led into a great conversation about the seriousness of sin and the desire for, for holiness. He asked tons of really great questions about what Christians can and can't do and what they must believe or not buy into. And as he read Romans 1, he asked about these verses. And he said something like this. He says, I don't know if I want to become a Christian if I have to believe this. Man, I respect that. Full bore respect that. The willingness to say that there is a cost. There there, there is an effect to coming to bow your knee to, to, to Jesus. It's something all of us should wrestle with. My response to him was something like this. At some point, you are going to have to decide. Is Jesus who he said he is? Did Jesus go to a cross and die so that the wrath of God would not be upon you? Did he rise from the dead as a declaration that the the cross worked? I go, if you don't believe that, then who cares what Roman 1 says? But if you do, if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, then everything about you comes under his lordship and submission to his authority. Your finances, your dreams, your gifts, your talents, your time, and your sexuality. Everything is underneath the authority of Christ. And this sets us up for the lie behind all the lies. If we look again at verse 25, that verse, because they exhaust, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature or the creation rather than the creator, is a summary and commentary on the preceding verses from verse 18 coming down. Here's what's being articulated. The reality of God is plain and clear, verse 20. And yet some suppress that truth, verse 18. They do not acknowledge God as God, verse 21. They craft a self-styled and flawed and human-centered view of God, verses 22 and 23. And ultimately what we're doing is denying that there is a creator God, either by how we live or by what we believe, verse 25. Let me summarize it. There's a lot going on in these verses. Here's the lie. The lie behind the lie. The lie that allows all the other lies to go unchecked. God doesn't exist. There's no creator God. Which means there's no standard of righteousness. Which means there's no judgment. Which means there's no eternity. Without a creator God or a designer or the truth giver, we are left to our own devices to forge our own sense of meaning and purpose and morality can live however we want that's where the existentialist went so this is how the existentialist jean paul sartre approaches this he says this he says if god did not exist everything would be permitted it's a summary from Fyodor Dostoevsky uh, from his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, this interaction, he pulled it from, from this novel, this interaction between some characters who said this, without God and immortal life all things are permitted then. They can do what they like. That's this text. That's the people that Paul has in mind when he writes this text. That's the lie behind the lie. That's the big lie. There is no God, so you get to be God. You get to be the arbiter of truth. You get to be the one to follow your heart because it's about you. Charles Taylor didn't just coin the phrase expressive individualism, but two other really helpful phrases that describe what I would say. It's the cultural air that we breathe. First phrase is this, exclusive humanism. It's a great little phrase, is what it means. There's no God. It's just about us, there's nothing else. And that leads to this an imminent frame. We operate within this imminent frame that that all reality is, is what we can see and verify and touch and taste. And within this imminent frame, what we have to do is to build some sense of transcendence because it doesn't exist. So we have to impose some sort of meaning into these moments. We have to be true to ourselves because this is it and we see nothing beyond it. Here's the question. Is that true or is it a lie? One of the main arguments made in this text is that we know there is a God because this world exists. That's verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now, the reality is that this text is solid. I'm trying to hold this together for a reason. We could spend years breaking apart each of these and diving deeply into them. But that is the question that this text poses to us of many questions is this. How is anything here? How is there something instead of nothing? How are there atoms? How is there matter? How does any of it come? Now, if you... Uh, ascribed to the Bible, however you think this all came about, you believe there is a God who spoke and created. You believe there is a creator God. That's part of what it looks like to believe his, his word. If you don't, you still have to answer the question. And I would suggest to you, if you dive deeply enough into that question of where did everything come from, the simple theories and answers that we offer, no one agrees on Not the smartest scientists, not the most staunch atheists, not the most well read and researched people. We don't agree. We just keep going to some point. We just go, I don't know. There's some place where you have to go. There is a mystery. There is a miracle that happened. And we keep trying to figure it out. But guess what? We can't figure it out. So all of us have to have a degree of faith. I'm doubtful that me saying that in passion is going to lead anyone that doesn't already believe to believe in this moment. But in love, I want to be really clear. The stakes are high to getting it right. That's verse 18. The wrath of God that settles upon us getting it wrong. The assumption of this text is that God does exist, that God's righteous standards exist. And as we continue through Romans, we'll see that everyone has failed to keep them. The good news of that is that it can push all of us to the the truth that's better than all the lies. As I worked through this passage this last week, um, there were some moments of, of real rawness, and I'll even say fear because as I looked at these lists, there's so many things on them that I have done and I still do. I am a man with all manner of unrighteousness. But as I kept pressing into this text and I kept walking through it, what that did is not end in despair, but it led me to the truth that's better than any of the lies. If we just go a few verses earlier into verses 16 and 17, we see this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone. That is a great word. Who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek, just means everyone. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What this text is saying is there's not just a creator God that says this is how you're meant to live. It also says there's a savior God. It says this is what's offered to all who have failed to live that way. Three times we read in this passage, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Gave them up. But what we don't read is that God gave up on them. Or us. Us who have suppressed the truth. Us that have not honored God as God. Us who have been led astray by lusting hearts. Us with dishonorable passions. Us with darkened minds. To us, this is what God offers, is Jesus. The one who bowed his knees to God's righteous commands and then went to a cross to take the wrath that we had earned, the Bible says He made Him who no new, no, no, knew no sin to become so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That the righteous one became unrighteous for the unrighteous, that we might be right standing before God. That's the truth that's better than all the lies of self-expression, of self-performance, of trying to define our meaning, our value, of earning, of performing. It's bowing and trusting. That's the better truth. And what this text does is invites us not towards more doing, but believing. The righteous shall live by faith. We throw all of our hope on him. We bring all of our righteousness, whatever stripe that looks like for you. And we look to the only righteous one. Live not by lies, they will fail you. But live by the truth of God and the righteousness of Christ, which will never fail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it would be foolish to not recognize the weightiness of a text like this and the challenge to our sensibilities. Help us to be able to say thank you for challenging us, for, for even having the consideration to be willing to speak and to not just abandon us. God, the reality is, is that we need the work of the Spirit to hear any of this truth and to respond to it. I've asked that you would give us such a confidence in your word and its goodness and its beauty God, as we think of the, the claims to truth in our culture now, God, there's, it's always been that. It just takes different shapes and forms. At the end of the day, we want to know what you, what you say. Grant us a hunger for that and grant us bent knees before it. And thank you that the, the loud truth that's stamped across all the other statements that you have is that there is a Savior God who wants to save And again, with that, we ask through the work of the Spirit, you would cause us to believe that we may not live by lies, but we would live by faith and we would receive the very righteousness of Christ. In this one life, we live so as we face judgment, we know that Christ has already took it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.